Hi, I'm Dennis Metzler, and welcome to The Charge. Today, we are taking a look at eschatology and ethics with Dr. Vincent Baycote, professor of theology at Wheaton College and the director of the Center for Applied Christian Ethics. He's also the author of The Political Disciple, A Theology of Public Life. Dr. Baycote, thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be with you. All right, so before we look at ethics and eschatology together, let's take a look at them separately. Could you give us a brief definition of each? Sure. Ethics is just simply how we live, right? How should we live? How ought we to live? So, and, and I think it's important to say Christian ethics is what I'm thinking about because there's all kinds of things about ethics out there. I mean, you, you can be talking about medical ethics. It's not necessarily Christian ethics or business ethics, necessarily uh, Christian ethics. So, I mean, how ought we to live in view of how God's revealed himself to us? So that's the ethics piece, Christian ethics. Eschatology, the simplest way to put it is, is how God wraps it all up, right? <laughs> the end of the story. The Greek term eschata for last things. Um, arguably, eschatology begins as early as Genesis three, when when you know when God announces the curse and He says to to the serpent that you know you you will strike His heel, but He's going to crush your head. So, arguably, you could say eschatology begins there, or you could say it begins in Genesis twelve when God says to Abram that in you all the nations are going to be blessed. Well, how's all that going to work out? There's a promise there about a reality that's going to come come where all the things going sideways or massively sideways after Genesis 3 are then going to be uh, wrapped up. The shalom that went away uh, is now we're actually going to have it. So God's going to bring that shalom to come to pass. So that, that's basically eschatology is about how's God going to do that So at the very end. So how about your foundational approach to eschatology? How would you describe that? When I teach it to my students, I try to talk about common elements of eschatology. Because my goal is to say, big picture, it's not what your millennial view is. The big question is, What's what are the common things that everybody talks about? Well, everybody talks about Jesus returning. Everybody talks about bodily resurrection. Uh, people debate whether or not there's an intermediate state between you know death and bodily resurrection. People talk about some version of a final judgment, and they talk about um, you know Christ reigning over everything, God setting all things right. You talk about a new heavens and a new earth, and so th- those are the common elements I like to talk about, and the fact that. The, the Bible presents those to us and that when God sets everything right, that is what we're getting. Big picture then, if you want to say um, that, you know, how is this new creation going to come about and what's it going to be like? Not what's it going to be like because we know all the details, but the fact that God's going to do certain things in terms of what's it's going to be like. So he's going to come, there's going to be judgment, there's going to be resurrection, people are going to live forever, God's going to reign with us, we will see him, that type of thing. All right. And how about for ethics? What's your basic approach to that? Um, Virtue ethics, consequentialist, deontological? Yes, is my answer. Because uh, I think it's a mistake to try to make them um, in competition with one another. I do understand how, if you think about the Bible in a certain way, you can think, okay, God gave us the Bible to obey. Therefore, you're thinking that it's about rules commands to follow right so a deontological approach or somebody could say there are there's a lot of if then in the bible so if you had that if then 
what's going to happen as a result of doing certain things and you have your kind of consequentialist or teleological approach. And of course, God says to be certain kinds of people, hence a virtue ethics. But the fact is, is that the Bible talks about all of them. And it's important, I think, to, to have them together. I was reading something the other day that I think kind of helpfully puts it together by saying, you know, if you're, if you're talking about virtue ethics, um, this is my interpretation of what I read anyway. Um, if you're talking about virtue ethics, you're talking about being a certain kind of person. Well, that person, you're talking about consequentialism, you're talking about a deontological view. Of course, you want the person who's making those decisions about purpose or a telos, or the perfect, or the person who's making decisions on the basis of obedience, you want them to be a certain kind of person. You want them to be a person of a certain kind of character. God isn't interested in people who, who do what he says, but they're actually very terrible people in terms of their character. So I think it's really important to talk about the fact that we, we need all of them. And I should also say, I'm very much a synthetic kind of thinker. So th- my mind is always synthesizing things together and kind of the synthesis is the way that I sort of conceptualize things. So I try to think about how can all of these things work together rather than trying to camp out one place or another. All right. And now we're going to look at them together. How would you, how do you construct your theology of eschatology and ethics and where does soteriology, that is salvation fit in and especially the kingdom of God? Sure. Sure. So, the, the baseline way of talking about it would be to say that because God is going to set all things right, this is where soteriology, I'll bring it in here. The setting things right includes what is, be, what is happening with us in being set right. In other words, becoming, you know, fully realized humans as a result of being reconciled to God through what Christ has done. So the forgiveness of sins, but also the transformation of who we are, becoming fully what it is to be in the image and likeness of God. That, you know, the culmination of all that, all of that is part of what God is doing in setting everything right. The kingdom of God factors into that in the sense that, look, when Jesus announces that, uh, the, you know, the kingdom is coming, along with that is, of course, how are you going to be a participant in this? You know, how do you get, how do you get into this thing? Well, you get into this thing by being right related to God through him, by being, if you will, in, in, in the right covenantal relationship with him. You, there is something transactional, of course, that happens with that, you know, whether we would say believing, giving your life to Jesus, etc. Those things are, are very important. When you do that, you are now a citizen of the kingdom. Now, as a citizen of that kingdom, we inhabit this interesting space here, that Colossians 1 language of we're, we're in the kingdom. We're brought into the dominion of the kingdom. But, of course, our lived experience is in a world that is not yet fully under the reign of God. So we live in that now and not yet type of reality. With eschatology, of course, everything is going to finally be now. (laughs) The not yet will actually be in the past. So God's going to make everything the now, the shalom, where everything is as it should be, is going to occur and that everything being as it should be includes Christ reigning forever and ever and ever and ever. So you have, I would argue, that the world, the universe, under the reign of God, the kingdom of God. The people belong to God. They are participants in that kingdom. And that's where it's going. If you're a Christian now, you have a foretaste of that. 
in terms of being made alive and experiencing personal transformation and participating with other Christians who are also uh, in, in that process of transformation. But you also know that everything isn't yet as it's going to be. But the question now is, and this can be the ethics piece into it, how do you live knowing the end of the story? Well, if you know the end of the story, it's like a person that, had, that likes to read horror novels of certain kinds. Not something that would be like a, an 80s slasher movie where you, you thought you killed the killer uh, and then at the beginning of the sequel, you know, the people that survived the last sequel all get killed off at the beginning. Not that kind of horror movie, but but the kind where it looks like the horror is going to win and then it gets vanquished. And so it's actually going to be vanquished. If a person is living in the present, it's like the person that's reading that novel and then reads the end of the book before they get to the end of the novel. Though. In other words, they skip ahead to the end. And now they know where this is going. Oh, okay, the monster's going to be destroyed. Okay. So... They know that all these threats are real. They know that there's going to be difficult things that are going to be going on, but you know where it's going. Because you know where it's going, it's going to play a role in how you perceive the present and how you practice your life in the present. So that's what the ethics is, is I know that this is coming. I know that there are these common elements involved in what's going to make it all, what's going to happen with the Shalom coming. And so how am I living now in light of where this is going? One of the ways uh, that, that you could say it, it is, it's like a person who says, on the one hand, when you think about eschatology, uh, you know it's going somewhere. What's it going to be like when we get there? And um, the ethics is trying to answer the what's it going to be like when we get there question by saying, how can we imagine to some degree, a coming attraction of what it's going to be like when we get there. So when I'm talking about this, then it's, it's definitely trying to avoid two uh, difficulties that can happen with certain approaches to ethics. One is an escapist approach to ethics, where Jesus saves you. Uh, it's great to be, be a pious person, um, but all the stuff around you, culture, politics, art, music, you know, banking. I mean, we can just, we can just, we just call the role all those things. Um, it's good that people do them for our getting through life. It's bad if you invest too much in those things because basically, it, it, with a strong discontinuity emphasis, God's going to blow all that up anyway. So why are you wasting your time investing in that? So why don't you just be a nice person and don't put too much uh, weight in what you're doing there. So even if you participate in politics, well, you, your job there is to be a nice person and maybe to do evangelism, but don't really try to make too much of a change because it's really going to all burn up anyway. So that's an escapist approach. A triumphalist approach is also one wants to avoid, in which case someone might pray. Uh, they say, you know, the, Lord, the Lord's prayer says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, they might say. And they go, you know, I'll bet when he told the disciples that he meant on earth and he didn't mean on earth in the future. He meant on earth now, on earth mm -hmm. as we put it into practice, you see. So our job is to pray that prayer and with him behind us doing our best to put into place the realities of the kingdom everywhere. 
Uh, you may have uh, perhaps talked with someone on a prior uh, podcast about what's called the Seven Mountains Movement. Uh, are you familiar with that? I've heard of that, yeah. Well, so in a way, it's kind of, it's kind of a, it's a culturally engaged type of way, but it's a very strongly uh, triumphalist kind of way because the idea is to for, for Christians to reign in the seven mountains of culture, to right, culture right. politics, etc. Um, and my problem with that is one fundamental thing that that should, to me, ought to put the brakes on anybody being a triumphalist, which is. If Paul says we see through a glass darkly, how does anybody know, no matter how sanctified you are, exactly what kingdom realities are supposed to look like in any domain of life? We, we do not have enough of a fully sanctified vision to know what exactly all of that is going to look like. And so the triumphalist temptation is Jesus has come, he's risen, the spirit has come, Spirit's living in us. Um, Jesus said you will do greater things. Well, well, maybe what he meant by doing the greater things is now we put into practice. To which I come back and say to them, hey, do you remember in Acts 1 when Jesus was asked by the, right. the disciples, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? A fair question to ask. I mean, you've been hanging around with the resurrected Jesus for 40 days. It's a pretty exciting type of state of affairs. You have to think Caesar's next, right? And so, so they ask, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel this time? Do we get to take over the universe? And Jesus says about that, um, you will not know. It is not to be revealed to you. Being my witnesses, which I think is a thoroughgoing, engaged witness as much as possible to be engaged. But you are not witnesses that know anything about really the final details for how it's all going to wrap up. And because you don't, in terms of lots of specifics about it, you know that's going to wrap up. He's going to come back. He's going to reign. You know the important things you need to know. A lot of other details you, you don't. Because of that, then nobody should be um, uh, very optimistic about wh what uh, they are definitely going to put in place with their ethical practice. So the goal is to steer between those things. And steering between those things, be engaged, and not just be engaged, but then the way I think about it is like coming attractions for a film. Um, and coming attractions for a film is different than like an abstract for an article. An abstract for an article basically gives you the whole art from beginning to end. You know where it's going all the way to the end. Right. Coming attractions only give you some semblance of what's happening. And that's good trailers. Bad trailers actually mislead you and get you, and you got to come and see this. And you think, I want my money back because that trailer told me that the movie was probably going to be a certain kind of thing. And then it was not like that at all. So we're not talking about those kinds of trailers. We're talking about the good kind of trailers that do give you some sense that there are these events that are happening. There are these things that are involved. It's going somewhere. And so you want to know more. Uh, right. and, and there, and so there's a glimpse of, of, of where this is going, but it doesn't tell you the complete story of where it's going. And so to me, uh, an eschatological ethic is one where we are performing these acts of ethical imagination to try to think about how are we portraying what is to come. So if somebody says, what's it like when we get there? We're saying maybe something like this, whereas the, whereas the escapist says, uh, you know, don't ask that question. Just be a nice person. 
the triumphalist says, well, I'll tell you what it's going to be like when it gets there. In between, it's maybe something like this. So it's more of a gesture than it is a, um, a certain way of doing things. Now, this is important to say. Some things are pretty clear in terms of commands, in terms of character, in terms of what will happen if you do X and Y will happen. Um, still, big picture, when it comes to a, a variety of topics that are Christian ethics questions, we just don't have enough information. So, you know, before we came on here, you know, we were talking about, uh, you know, Russia invading Ukraine. Um, okay, what should you do about modern warfare, Christians want to know? Well, whatever your answer is going to be, it's going to be kind of fuzzy. Because you can't say, well, I will tell you all the precise details of exactly how this is supposed to go down from a God's eye point of view. Um, I think that I think there are some commands, some principles, certainly some dimensions of character, some dimensions of what things that may be consequentialist. But whatever those dimensions are, they're still not giving you this airtight, crystal clear picture about exactly um, what to do in all cases of modern warfare. So I think we had to keep that in mind when we're thinking, right. um, what, you know, what we're doing with Christian ethics. Okay, and what scriptures are core to you that most illustrate what um, biblical theology in this arena is all about? Well, there are a lot, uh, so of course we don't have time for all those. I'm, I'm going. I'm going to use. Um, I'm going to juxtapose two texts that maybe kind of help put it together. The first is Romans 8, 19 and 22. So in Romans 8, 19 and 22, you have this language, the creation is groaning for its redemption. So it's going somewhere, right? And if you, and if you want to sort of add to that, something that's, that, that can help us think about where it's going, if you think about that language in Colossians 1, um, after we learn about being, you know, we're brought to the kingdom, the language that's exalting Christ, we have that specific language about all things are created by him and for him, talking about Christ. So if all things are created by him and for him, what that means is when you're thinking about the entirety of the created order, what God is doing in terms of what is coming, it really does have a purpose. And God, God has a positive purpose for his creation. The reason that's important is that means that our life on earth is going somewhere and that's going to a culmination or to a conclusion and that God isn't going to torture it all. Now, the thing is, you juxtapose that with language from 2 Peter 3, 10 and following, where you have language about things being burned up. Now, well, what about the things being burned up? To which I say, read earlier in 2 Peter chapter 3, when you talk about things being destroyed by the flood. I would wager that most people, when they tell the story of Noah, they don't say, you know what this means, everybody, when this, when, when this great uh, flood happened. God washed away the entire earth, basically, and it completely went away by water. And somehow, miraculously, Noah and his family just kind of floated in this, this 
sea that was sort of suspended in the middle of the cosmos after God had, had washed away the entire, you know, materiality of the earth. And then God reconstituted the materiality of the earth. And then they landed on Mount Ararat. Nobody tells the story that way. Everybody thinks, oh, well, no, the earth was there. There's a flood. People died. They survived. The point is, is that the parallel about destruction by fire rather than by water is when we're talking about things being burned up. The parallel would suggest, the parallel alone, that what, whatever is going on, things being burned up or being destroyed, it's not about God saying, if you think mushroom clouds were amazing, watch what I do to the earth. Right. That that's not at all. Uh, I think what, what what's an issue there? The point is, judgment is coming, and when that judgment is coming, you know nobody will be able to hide. You know everything's going to be burned away in terms of the clouds. There's nothing that's going to be hidden. Everyone is going. Everyone will be uh, exposed for what they are, and then here comes the final judgment. Then at that final judgment, you have a new heavens and a new earth, and people are to live a certain way in light of that. So I think the reason I mentioned this Romans 8 verse and the second Peter 3 verse is that if we're talking about what's happened with eschatology in terms of what God is going to do, then God is going to bring about the fulfillment of what happened in the garden and ends in a city in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, right? And so uh, with Revelation 21, I think I, somebody also helps us to think about this new heavens and new earth being really a renewed or a transformed uh, or consummated uh, heavens and earth is that language that comes that's borrowed from Isaiah where or quoted from Isaiah where it says, you know, um, you know, there's no night. The nations will walk by the light of the nations I mean, by, by, by the light of the sun uh, and the kings of the, of the earth will bring the, in the glory of the nations that suggests that what comes into the the new heaven and new earth is to some degree, some dimension of whatever good things were produced on this side. They're things that can be brought into the new heavens and new earth. So that continuity, I think, is very important. Another continuity that even people that want to talk about the earth being obliterated, a continuity that they take for granted is that um, even even with the ways that people sometimes uh, suggest that the eschatology of our, with us as human beings is one where you die, you go to heaven, end of story. Well, if you ask them, say, hey, did Jesus promise that we would get up with new bodies in the, at the end? That most of those people will say, oh, absolutely. It's just, that, it's just that people tend not to think, to talk about bodily resurrection as much as they talk about a kind of disembodied state that they think goes on forever. We're really... It's an embodied state because if Jesus is the first fruit in a resurrected body, then what are we? Well, we're not just Jesus resurrected in the body. The rest of us, we just kind of float around. Well, no, he's raised in a body. He tells Thomas to touch him and you know he eats, etc. And so if he's the first fruits, you know, we come after that. And so our bodily resurrection is also something that emphasizes the continuity between what we are where we are now and where this is going and the implication of that of course is that i mean something about how we function in terms of the goodness of embodiment how we function in terms of the fact that of the things we do now some of that can be brought in as part of the glory of the nations 
Hmm. Something I haven't mentioned uh, that uh, is at the end of 20 going into 21. It's also mentioned in 22, really. Um, it's interesting to think, if you're going to think about an eschatological ethic, about the question of um, final judgment. Because, or so Matthew 25, 31 to 46 as well, if you may use that. Um, because everybody knows, even what, no matter what people's theology of, of judgment hell is, um, that you've got language about people standing before God. Right? Meet your maker, stand before your maker, etc. Um, I, I, you know, as I've been thinking about it, one thing that needs to be part of our ethics is the fact that you have to answer for what you've done. Right. So now grant the judgment seat of Christ is a much kinder, nicer situation, <laughs> you know, than the great white throne judgment, but it does state that there's something about the stewardship of our lives that, you know, will, will, will be, could be an accounting for the stewardship of our lives before God. In which case, then, Christians ought to be thinking about if, if judgment is coming, one dimension of that is how am I living in light of the fact that I know I have to answer for my priorities, for the choices that I make, for the way I function in my relationships, etc. Um, that would seem to be a very obvious dimension of Christian ethics, but my sense is that a lot of Christian ethics doesn't think about fi- the final judgment part of it, right? We think about other things, final judgment doesn't factor in, but it, it, to me, it, it seems like it obviously should factor in. The fact that there's a great white throne judgment tells us that whatever we're doing in the face of suffering and opposition, um, and a lot of times opposition that seems like it's going to win, is the fact that it's not going to win. And that we know that God is committed to ultimate justice. In which case, then, his people ought to be ones who are also, again, if we're thinking about these gestures, these coming attractions, how are we showing our commitment to ultimate justice? Because the fact of the matter is this. No matter what anybody's politics are uh, or your ways of thinking about what you want to happen in the culture, everybody wants justice. Everybody has one of those moments where they go, well, that's just wrong. How could that happen? Something ought to be done about that. You know, that person ought to be brought to justice. That 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 sense is uh, is a sense that everyone has. I mean, non-Christians have that that sense. And so, um, I think it's important that we consider that also as part of our our eschatology ethics. So that's, that's a lot of different texts there um, that that. Uh, obviously, or it's not close to being exhaustive, but but those are some of the ones that are important for me. Okay, and in terms of historical theology, mm-hmm. um, let's take a look at um, some examples of how different Christian movements oh, sure, or thinkers sure, sure. combine their eschatology and ethics. Um, first, could you talk about the Anabaptists and uh, particularly their pacifism in, sure, sure. in light of eschatology? Sure, I would, I would point... Um, Watchers, readers, to uh, watchers, listeners, to the Schleitheim Confession of 1527. Just to, it's a, I mean, it doesn't mean all Anabaptists do things exactly like that, but it's an initial um, expression of a commitment that is clearly one that is nonviolent and clearly one where if you belong to God, your allegiance is to Jesus and to his kingdom. His kingdom is coming. 
His kingdom is not in the present, but you are to live as an agent of that kingdom, as a citizen of that kingdom, by keeping your allegiance to him. And what's also expressed, for, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, language like turn the other cheek, for example, is a commitment to nonviolence. Because some, some, I think, Mennonites or Anabaptists would say it's less pacifism than it is nonviolence. Right? So it's, it's a commitment to do no harm. You know, love does no harm to its neighbor. So, um, so that's a view when you think about eschatology. Yes, the future kingdom is going to come and then God's going to establish that on the earth. But in the meantime, we operate as an kind of an alternative society who's as a community together, we function in this way of what is coming, but we do not try to put, we do not try to bring about through means external to the, you know, uh, God establishing the kingdom. We don't try to make that kingdom happen in society. We expect other people to live with a, a different allegiance than with allegiance to the one true God. So um, it's, I mean, the shorthand, short version would be uh, a nonviolent oriented alternative witness. All right. And how about uh, Luther would definitely be a contrast to that. How about Luther and his two kingdoms theology? So Luther didn't mind that people were involved in, in society, but um, he did think that the church should function as church. What is, the, what is church for? Church is for word and sacrament, if you will. It's for worship. And everyone should participate in society. So be, you know, be a cobbler, be a sweep, street sweeper or something else um, and do your job. But you're doing your job according to the way it's emerged uh, in the world, so to speak. Right. So in the kingdom of the world. And so you have a different kind of discontinuity or a different kind of parallel s situation than with the Anabaptists, because. Uh, on the one hand, what would seem in common is that they're like, okay, church should do churchy things. Um, the Anabaptist, for the Anabaptist, that means, yes, and be a churchy community that's an alternative witness. Whereas for Luther, it's like, uh, do churchy things in terms of what you proclaim and what and how you worship. When you when you participate in life outside of the church, then, then what do you do? Well, you... I mean, still be a nice person, et cetera, but you're not trying to make what's happening in law or in education. You're not, you're not trying to make it in the image of the kingdom of God. So you, yes, participate in it, do it really well, but you're not trying to transform that. So in the commitment to not trying to transform that, that can sound like an Anabaptist dimension, except for the fact that there's more of a, uh, encouragement to participate in, in the kingdom. W one way I heard a Lutheran pastor put it was to say that if there is uh, an elder of a Lutheran congregation who is a judge uh, and he's doing his business as a judge and part of what he does is make decisions about divorces, if a member of his church comes into his courtroom seeking a divorce, he only functions as the judge. He just does the job of the judge. So what does he do? He just simply assesses the case and he perhaps grants the divorce. Let's say it's the middle of the week and there's 
uh, a, a church event or a church, uh, a church governance type of event that's going on. As an elder in, in his church, he may then function as that person, request that that person be disciplined <laughs> by the church, <laughs> or maybe even excommunicated, depending upon the congregation. Why? Because they saw a divorce. Because there he's functioning as an elder. But he's not functioning as an elder when he's a judge. He's just doing what judges do. So it's his job to do what judges do, not to bring into being a judge the fact that you know um, we're like in the same church, right? And um, you should really be thinking about what our church teaches, etc. No, because his job is to be the judge. So be the judge. Right, and that would include for Lutherans part, full participation in the mil- military. It would, using absolutely. lethal force oh, as policemen. Absolutely. Everything. But um, would you distinguish then between the eschatology of the Anabaptists and the Lutherans? Or is there nothing significant there in the eschatology? Um, to me, uh, there's nothing significantly different in terms of the fact that they, they're both talking about the fact that, that Christ is going to come. In terms of the way that the eschatology influences the ethics, um, I think you have more of a sense of the eschatology including the ethics of the, the Anabaptists than the Lutherans. Because if you think about it, right, like if I think, okay, what do Lutherans actually think about eschatology? And, you know, it's probably going to be a long pause. Because it's not the, the thing that is prominently emphasized. Christ is returning. He's going to be the judge. We all have to stand before that judge. If you're a Christian, thank God that you're justified. <laughs> you know, I mean, that that's more of the way that um, I perceive how uh, justification, how um, eschatology is going to be functioning for the Lutheran. Okay, and how about for the dispensationalists? Well, isn't it interesting you mentioned dispensationalists? Well, so in terms of the gener- general sense with dispensationalism, because dispensationalism emphasizes the fact that you are anticipating that the church is going to be removed prior to the tribulation, right? So that the church age is going to come to an end and Christians are going to be raptured out prior to the tribulation because you have the emphasis on two peoples of God, the Gentile people of God, and then the, uh, the Israel, um, the God is going to resume his engagement with Israel. And then after they suffer, then God's going to fulfill these promises to Israel because the literal hermeneutic promises being made to Israel and the Old Testament are made to Israel, not made to Gentiles. So God starts to fulfill his promises. When's God going to do that? It's going to be after, it's going to be after the church is out of the way. The church is up in heaven. So if the church is going to be removed. Um, then what, well, what can happen? Well, well, what, or what could be the implication of that for ethics? The implication is that you should um, be thinking about getting people ready to be raptured. In other words, so you're going to have more of a uh, evangelism emphasis, more of a, well, not necessarily, there are a lot of people who are evangelistic who are not dispensational, so let me put that out there. But the point is, is that your priorities are going to be what I would call quote unquote spiritual priorities because you're not going to be focusing on trying to make the world better. You're going to be focusing on people hearing what the word of God says and preparing themselves to be ready when the rapture happens, which means being a certain kind of people and being faithful to that. Now there are people who are dispensationalists who are more willing to be involved in politics, but, but you do wind up having 
something that seems to diminish something that ought to be a, something that, it would diminish um, any kind of theological catalyst for engagement in politics, art, culture, law, medicine, etc. I mean, again, just saying don't participate in those things, but you're not going to put your energy in toward, towards that. Because why? Well, because with, with the level of discontinuity that's emphasized, people are going to, um, or, or rather God is going to make enough of a new heavens and new earth type of transformation that whatever things are here, it's not coming into what's going to be in the future. So, you know, to say only what you do for Christ will last will be about what kind of person you're going to be. Okay. And they likewise, at least classic dispensationalists, yeah. assigned the Sermon on the Mount ethics for a future age. Some of them do, yes. Yes. I mean, it's it's very tricky for because of all the... But our... But you know, maybe that's just evangelicalism, I suppose. But but uh, yes, yes, uh, that that is not <laughs> classic dispensationalists would say that if you will, the red letters, <laughs> the things Jesus says, they're for Jews. The things for Gentiles are what you get with Paul. And so the thing, whatever's going on with what Jesus says, it's good for us to know, but. It's for Israel, not for the church. Pretty wild. Um, and it so is, I'll... but, but, but the, it's the, the dominant eschatology in evangelicals between the 20th century, without question, is dispensationalism. Uh, it begins to tempt it to, to lose its, the footprint shrinks, uh, and it begins to lose, I would say, its strong grip on the evangelical community by the late 80s. I mean, that's why you get the Left Behind books, because Tim LaHaye wanted to repopularize. Right. So they were very popular and made he and Jerry Jenkins tens of millions of dollars. But um, the popularity did not lead to deep roots for dispensationalism throughout the, you know, the, the, the evangelical landscape right. or, deep, or deepening those evangelical roots. I mean, when I started here at Wheaton in January 2000, lots of people were reading those books. But um, the popularity did not turn into deep conviction, let's put it that way, on those details. Okay. Well, that's fortunate for all of this. <laughs> so how about um, did, did Albert Schwartz? Did you say fortunate for all of this? That's fortunate that their <laughs> books did not change yeah, that's right, that's right. I just wanted to be sure that's what you said. Yeah, like, yeah. I think I heard him say fortunate. <laughs> yes, yes. All right. So uh, how about Albert Schweitzer, Albert Schweitzer and his interim ethic? He, um, you know, go ahead. The, so the point uh, with Schweitzer is that the, the, the things that seemed extraordinary, like turning the other cheek or, um, or, or you know, uh, anything that was seen to be non-aggression, uh, that those extraordinary things are things you would do because you know that Jesus is coming back soon. He's going to set everything right. But, you know, here he is in the 20th century, 19th into the 20th century saying, well, you know, th those are things you do uh, if you're pretty sure that he's going to be coming back. So you, you, ha you have you, this hope that that's going to happen. So what that means is, is that, uh, now, obviously, you're going to temper what your ethics are 
because you're just not going to be so extreme or arguably you're going to be more realist uh, if you know that um, or, or if you're aware of the fact that you're just not sure when he's coming. Um, and of course, I think it's important to put Schweitzer in just a larger category of people who were interpreting um, the, the Bible in ways very much influenced by what was happening with the Enlightenment. And so um, people are trying to make sense of what is there. Even if they care a lot about it, a lot of the people that, that you would call modernists, uh, people call a lot of people call liberals today, that, that, that um, I mean, it's important to say that it's not that their goal was is priority number one, undermine the Christian faith. I think a lot of them, they were trying to find a way to hold on to it amid, amid post-Enlightenment skepticism. And so they thought that they were helping. I remember somebody telling me that about Boltmann. It's like, you're telling me that Rudolf Boltmann demythologization was, um, he thought he was helping. Well, yeah, he did. Because if you, at least for some people, it probably seemed like um, the modern consensus was going to, um, you know, it it, it was showing us the, the way things really are. And, and arguably, it was an alternative eschatology, uh, you know, um, carried along with the ring, ca- carried along with the activities of the autonomous subject, uh, to which I always say, and, and thus two world wars, uh, you know, and, and other things that were not so successful. A lot of good things have happened post enlightenment in terms of modernity, modern medicine, etc. But delivering uh, the uh, fulfillment of humanity has not been one of them. All right. And how about liberation theology? How would you relate its eschatology? To yeah. Ethics? So there are liberation theologies. Uh, I, liberation theologies, you know, for, you know, generally people think about it, think Gutierrez, Latin American liberation theology. So this is coming out of a Catholic background, um, late 60s, early 70s, um, into the present. Um, that is what people generally think about. But at the same time, around the same time, James Cone is writing Black Theology and Black Power, um, you know, Black the- a Theology of Liberation. Uh, a, not much not, not much longer after that, you have the emergence of feminist theology. Um, and then womanist theology is kind of, re, you know, coming out of Black theology. So all of those theologies, which are not completely the same in terms of their detail, but they're all theologies that are looking at the context and noticing crises of the, the lived experiences of poor people or of women or uh, or of a particular ethnic group. Um, and, and, and of course it goes on, there's all kinds of, of, of other liberation theologies now. And so uh, all of them in some way are recasting the faith to identify the fact that God is in favor of the oppressed and that what God is going to do is bring about justice for the oppressed. So uh, they're, they're theologies that do not deny present suffering, but, but they emphasize commitments to what God is doing in Christ being a commitment that's going to bring about the vindication of the oppressed. So, so, so eschatology is going to be largely about 
the vindication of, of the oppressed. So um, I, I, I do think it's important to be aware of the fact that, well, two things. One, um, the question always needs to be asked, why liberation theology is even there to begin with? What didn't happen in other places where somebody even needed to be talking about liberation theology? Because, um, you know, here I am at Wheaton College, you know, this evangelical institution. Um, evangelicalism, uh, you know, they're, they're, it's, it's slightly better about addressing things like race and poverty than it was, but um generally it's been other people that have been the ones who've been sp you know spilling most of the ink about that and you wind up with almost a kind of um selectively gnostic approach to theology and ethics about those types of things where where well we want to talk about th those topics because that's social gospel where you're where you're turning everything right. into um god's work in the world there's a lot of space between social gospel and a kind of um, selective Gnosticism because you're uncomfortable with whatever those ethical concerns are. So, so, I, so I, I think it's just important. It's important to talk about liberation theology and say uh, the difficulties of liberation theologies is the magnification of the context and the recasting of the faith in ways where arguably you're speaking about the faith in the key of whatever the, ch the the concerns are of that oppressed group. And then sometimes you want, you get a morphing of things or a reprioritization of things that is, is making everything about addressing the, the, what, whatever, whatever the, the group is, who, who's ever liberation theology. Right. But the critique would be of the eschatology is that, um, it's very social. The eschatology yes. is merely social. It's, yes. It doesn't really have an eschaton. There's no afterlife. There's no judgment. Yes. The judgment yes. against well, 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 oh, there is. There's a, there, there, there's selective judgment. The judgment's not against the poor and oppressed, though, because they're... No, the, no, they're, the judgment's against the oppressed. Right, Although right. I will say this. I was at an event in 1998 or 1999 where I met Gustavo Gutierrez, and he gave this talk. He was in New York. And he said, people who think that the poor are virtuous, these people have never met, met the poor. And I think if we were talking to Gutierrez, he would probably be to some degree fairly orthodox about kind of a Catholic eschatology. It's just that his emphasis has been on, you know, that magnification of attending to the oppressed. So, I, I mean, I agree, I, I, I agree with you that certainly what happens is people care about so let's say somebody doesn't know about liberation theology. They hear about it because it's speaking to these great problems. And what happens? Well, now they, they, because it's identifying problems they care about, they kind of buy everything that they're reading there because wherever they're coming from didn't say a whole lot about it. So now somebody's giving me an account of how to address this. And so sometimes they are then modifying their own beliefs because they rightfully, I think, care about these big problems. So I, I think w w the thing people need to see is, is, is to ask the question, how is this helping me to talk about this, but do I need to completely change everything I've believed in order to ad address this? Sometimes the way that people have reacted to liberation theology would make you think so. And I think the important thing is to ask, how am I telling the whole story of the faith? And 
the whole story of the faith where when God sets everything right, it includes the vindication of the oppressed. Right. right. It, it's not and, and that and that God cares about justice in the future and God cares about justice in the present. And so so uh you know another way to think about that is if you think about what was one of the ways of miscommunicating the gospel? Well, at least in the United States, uh communicating well, if Europeans any in, in Europe and the Americas, communicating to people that you're trafficking. <laughs> so you treat you're treating people like as property, and you think that Christianizing them is well, at least it's Christianized them when the gospel was already in Africa before those people got there. Never mind, so never mind that part of it. But you 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 think that you're you're doing them a favor, and meanwhile, the favor you're doing to them is hey, let me use your labor, enrich myself. With, with, with I'm do, how I'm using your labor and I destroy your families, etc. And meanwhile, um, I'll tell you a version of the gospel that tells you about how delightful things are going to be when you cross over. Right, that the gospel is right. all about, you, you know, right, life. So hope is actually being used against people. Eschatology uh, is being hope, used yeah. to enslave people. Yes, hope, hope is being used uh, in a way to... Um, uh, manipulate people into tolerating horror because it's going to be okay in the end yes exactly exactly that is about as insidious as you can get well you know the, uh, these days i i, I had to keep reminding myself that one really shouldn't be surprised what people do with, with if you really believe in depravity uh, and, if you, and if you don't believe in entire sanctification i'm not a wesleyan when it comes to sanctification so i don't uh, so one of the ways that a person can be pretty mature in certain other ways, but show that they have a lot to go is that said, you know, there's a whole vista of sanctification undiscovered for you that because you're doing what you are actually digging deep in things that are horrific uh, that you somehow justified by perversions of, of the faith that you say that you hold. Well, and, that, Reminds me then of Revelation shows up a few times. Uh, it talks about people of every tribe, nation, mm -hmm. and tongue will be there worshiping God together. So what should that tell us about our ethics now mm -hmm. and, and our ecclesiology? Sure. One of the things it tells us is that when it's saying they're worshiping every tribe, and tongue, and nation, I think it's important when it says that they're, they're, they're worshiping him. The fact that it's telling us where they're from strongly suggests that they're worshiping him in their language, it with their form of cultural expression, which means, so it means two things. On the one hand, it means the gospel is really global. So going back to the promise to Abram, gospel to the ends of the earth, all different kinds of people, right? So in other words, yes, through the chosen people, all the people, you know, people from all kinds of peoples will be the people of God. And so that tells us that um, one of the ways to give a coming attraction is for us to express the truth of the faith by doing the work of living well together across those ethnic, cultural, racial differences. Now, if I'm in the middle of Montana, it's, it's not going to be a whole lot of diversity, probably. So I, so I, I, I at least need to be cultivating, if I'm in a very monocultural type of place, 
I need to be cultivating at least a disposition where if I get into a place where there can be greater diversity or I can begin to have some diversity, I'm making myself ready for it rather than just reinforcing sort of a kind of cultural hegemony and, mm-hmm. and, and mistaking this cultural hegemony somehow for the way that, of course, it's always been in the kingdom of God. When, of course, here we are in the 21st century where whatever we're doing is not the way anybody was doing it in the first century. It's it may be may have some continuity with it, but it's not the way that it was done. So we need to be aware of the fact that we that we have culturally formed expressions of worship, preaching, etc., and, and doing ministry, and that those may be great things, very effective things, but they're one of the ways. And so if we're making ourselves ready, then we need to be saying, what are some of the other ways? You know, what are some of these other flavors? What, what, what are some of the other ways we see God's creativity at work here through what others are doing? And what happens if we are a community together because our geography allows it to that, that can begin to express that? So I, I think it, so we have the potential for what we call multiracial, multi-ethnic types of ecclesiology in practice. But to do that is a, is, is, is a perpetual process because this is one of the ways to think about it. Just think about the problems that people who have the same culture have with each other in church. Now, if they have those problems already, think about when you bring other people into this. So that doesn't mean, therefore, do nothing. No, no. Do you do nothing because in whatever, you know, sort of besetting sins you have in your life, you go, oh, well, I know God Mm. wants me to be a holy person, but, you know, because this is kind of difficult for me. To be realistic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my realism is I'll just be prideful. I'll just be a liar. I'll just be mean. Etc. Well, I don't think anybody would say that that's a really great approach to sanctification. So similarly, just because it's hard for us to learn how to live well together and to find a way to have some kind of, whether it's a cultural synthesis or whether it's having, you know, if you will, cultural diversity and we celebrate that diversity and we express that diversity and that even if it's not generally what somebody else does, you learn to appreciate the, the difference that somebody else has. And some things may be you know, hybrids that emerge out of that. Um, that. That there's the work being done to express that so that so that you're seeing a church that is doing what humans have never been good at doing ever since Genesis 3, which is living well together. I mean, it's, you know, what, once you get you know, the woman you gave me, it's on. And then by chapter four, you know, I mean, Cain gave a mediocre sacrifice, but he thought it was his brother's problem. So he says, let's go for a walk. And he's the only one that comes back. They're family. So you have fratricide in a family. Now, if that if that's what the way it, it started going down from then, hmm. we, we need just to be aware. Don't be surprised that it's hard unless you, you think. That conversion means that people are completely sanctified upon conversion. Don't be surprised. It's hard for people. But hard doesn't mean do nothing. Hard means don't be surprised that sometimes it's harder than you thought it was. Okay. But keep at it. Okay. Well, so that takes me to Jesus. Um, He was called 
to be willing to be crucified. He mm-hmm. knew that was an essential part of the plan of salvation. But along with that, he knew, he knew he was going to be raised again. So as we look at the crucifixion and resurrection and we're called in our baptism to participate in that, how should that affect our ethics? Uh, well, as you know, I already said, we're not being a triumphalist, but our theology of the cross should not be um, a theology one of actively seeking suffering because you don't need to because you're between Genesis 3 and Revelation 21 and 22. Don't worry. It will find you. You're in a, you're in a world where you have the whole uh, – where, where you have – uh, a most of the world, I mean, is, is in opposition to the Lord. So d- things are going to oppose you. So don't be surprised at suffering. Um, and don't interpret suffering as futility. Interpret suffering as part of what is to be expected in a world between Genesis 3 and Revelation 21 and 22. Some people, some Christians, just because of the way things work out in their lives, are not going to suffer a whole lot. Other people will think, how can anybody even get through? We don't know who, what, what people's allotment for suffering will be for whatever reason. But what we also know is because Christ is risen, that suffering does not have the last word. So even in the face of suffering, we live as people who are a hope, even as we are the most honest about, have the most realism about suffering. I think sometimes it's in the United States, people think that Christianity means you meet Jesus and everything just works out for you. I just want those people to read the book of Acts. People, people at the front row seat with Jesus. It's like, now, how many times were people in the, in the book of Acts? <laughs> you know, um, what 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 happened uh, to to Peter and, and John? Did, didn't they get flogged? Um, you know what, what's going on here? The point being that suffering should not be a surprise. Suffering does not have the last word, um, but suffering but suffering is also not something to seek. All right. So we already took a look at some various movements uh, within mm-hmm. the church. But worldly systems have their own eschatology yes. and ethics. Um, so could you talk about two of the principal ones we've had to deal with over the last centuries, uh, communism and capitalism? <laughs> How would you describe their eschatology and ethics? Uh, the short answer would be the, the, the eschatology of communism is that if you have um, a few people ruling, but 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 shared property among everyone, um, you will somehow strangely have high productivity and high happiness, uh, and you won't have uh, a, a a class of of uh, the, the ruling class keeps coming to my mind, but. Um, you won't have a ruling class that has all the money and people are are grinding in poverty. You'll get a mythic equal society is what you'll get. And everyone will be happy and everyone will share everything. Um, that's like a certain version of a kind of hippie utopia to me where, well, we all agree that we're going to share everything. And then, of course, what happens when somebody decides 
we sent Tom and Purse, but I decided to keep half my paycheck. And, and, and no, but nobody knows. And then, of course, somebody finds out, and then it starts to blow up. Uh, the, the flip side, um, virgins, there are versions of capitalism that suggest you give people enough opportunity in free markets, then um, you're going to make it possible for everyone to flourish as, at, while they have access to capital and they put in the hard work. To which I want to say is, um, what about all the people that are serial entrepreneurs where most of those things have failed? And they've tried over and over and over again. And the other thing I want to say about that is that the Bible says nothing about capitalism per se. Um, I do think if, you, if you're talking about those two different things, um, forms of capitalism have done things that help create the middle class. They've done things uh, that have helped encourage innovation, all that type of stuff. But um there's also the problem that there are people who clearly use it to advantage themselves and advantage, if you will, their friends. And they may use rhetoric about equality of opportunity, but strangely, they only seem to, when it, if you're talking about like investment in places of society, certain places get more of the, of the investment than others. And then if you add to that, the fact that one, at least in our country, one of the, the main drivers of wealth is property values. That's been very selective. And it's, so, been, it's been strategically selected. So you tell people that look, if you, if you buy, if you buy property it, you, and in this capitalist society where, you know, your, your property values are going to go up. Well, um, if you're in the right neighborhood, it's going to go up. And, and who, and who determines what's the right, what, what counts as the right neighborhood. The point being that is that I think sometimes capitalism markets are presented as being just disinterested. The problem is that human beings are involved and it's very hard for human beings to be completely disinterested. And, and, and then never mind the fact that even if everybody, even if it was working out according to the way it's sold to some people in, in our uh, world, no system that's producing material wealth for people brings people happiness. So I was just reading in the Atlantic Monthly sort of a synopsis of uh, Arthur Brooks' most recent book where he's talking about all, you know, it's the same wash, rinse, and repeat over and over again. It's the book of Ecclesiastes over and over again. Get more money, have more experiences, have more houses, have, have whatever, have more achievements. And what happens? You just get a larger and larger sigh is what you get of dissatisfaction. So there's nothing about, you know, th this productivity and achievement that is going to deliver a kind of eschatological shalom for you. And, and sometimes certainly what people sell is, you know, if you just do all these things that you're able to do, you will have the life you've always wanted. It's because life you've always wanted, you will have perfect shalom. And what happens? Well, dissatisfaction happens. And every person that thinks that they're going to be the person that's the exception is just the person that's getting in line to be the next person that sighs heavily. Okay. And, the, and then at the end of their life, if that's what they've done, recognize that the most, the more important things were family and other things instead of, instead of like how many trying to get gold watches and stuff. Okay, but back to communism. Yeah. What does the eschatology of communism lead to in terms of ethical outcomes? Uh, well, uh, to me, um, 
I mean, what has it actually led to? I mean, it, it, it obviously actually has led to one oligarchies is what it's led to, and which means that um, certain people are in control. Everybody else has to be under the management of the ruling class. And uh, even though you have supposedly free medicine and free everything, it's it has diminished. If we go back to Genesis one and think about the cultural mandate and the the stewardship opportunity for flourishing in society, it 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 to me diminishes the inclination for humans to be um, functioning in their their human purpose to be stewards of the created order. So it works against um, if, you, if, we're th- if we're thinking about human functioning going all the human productivity in relationship to that language in Revelation 21 about the, the glory of the nations coming in, it diminishes the desire to, be, to, to produce something that would be part of the glory of the nations. Okay. And uh, a lot of eschatology recently, especially with N.T. Wright, is focused on the fact that the ultimate end, the telos, is mm-hmm. not to be disembodied spirits, yeah, but to right, be right. in resurrected bodies. So how does that um, shift... Um, towards uh, more biblical theology, mm-hmm. how does that influence our ethics now? Sure. I think it can, and certainly for Wright, he he wants people to care about the environment and to care about the world around them, care about the people around them. And I think what he's doing, he's rightly emphasizing the fact that an interim reality is being often articulated as the final reality. And this idea of heaven in a disembodied state being the the final place it goes back to what i was saying earlier about what i think dispensationalism and and escapist uh ethics do they do what that be a nice person um but don't invest yourself in trying to make the world better and in fact maybe be suspicious of people who are because they care too much about being worldly to which i say understand what worldly actually means Worldly means a world operating, really uh, taking the bargain of Genesis 3, where you take your dictates for anyone other than God, and you let them tell you how to live in the world that God has made. So you live in the world, trying to get from the world, good from the world, and fulfillment from the world. Uh, and that's what is your worldly. It's not the fact of participating in the world. It's who's, who is orienting you to in your participation in the world that God has made. If the God who made you is orienting you towards your participation in that world, then what we're doing with politics, culture, et cetera, is all very, very important. And certainly I think the emphasis on the fact that our telos is not to be disembodied, but to be embodied is one of the ways of talking about our connection to the world itself. And if we have that connection to the world itself, you're being taken for dust to the ground, then why aren't we attending to ourselves in a way, right? Why aren't we attending to the world that we inhabit? And uh, I, I think a lot of it is, is because you get this very strong uh, trajectory where, where well, I guess it's two things. One, there's the delay of Christ's physical return. And so in the meantime, people are with God disembodied between now their death and when Jesus returns. So you have that piece of it. And then there's just the the way you got this prominence of um, a heavenly uh, interim existence being the culmination. 
And uh, obviously that that diminishes, uh, you know, care for anything that's not um, internal or vertical. So uh, whereas I think what what Wright and others are doing, um, self-included, is trying to say, you know, that the horizontal horizon is very much part of what God wants us to do in terms of following him and serving him because he has not abandoned this. He, in fact, he's very committed to this. So, you know, when he said that the creation was very good in Genesis one thirty one, he didn't change his mind in Genesis three. Right. It's, it's a good though fallen creation, but it's a good though fallen creation that he is going to reclaim and transform and, and over which he will reign. All right. So you are doing research and writing on a forthcoming book about eschatology and ethics. Correct. Um, could you tell us the title, who's publishing it, when is it going to be out, and some, some more about the content? Sure. Uh, what's the title? Good question. Still a work in progress. Um, I'm thinking about coming attractions actually being the title. Um, oh. Uh, because because of, because of what I was saying earlier about this, you know, how are we imaginatively portraying what it might be like? Um, Baker Academic is the publisher. Um, I've told them many times that I was going to have the book finished. Uh, so 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 the book uh, we are hoping to finish the book by June is what we're trying to do. Okay, so that's that's called a prayer request, basically. Uh, so. The the goal, uh, my approach in the book is a lot like what I said at the beginning, is to talk about how these common elements of eschatology are a prism through which we are perceiving various ethical issues, race, politics, um, what I'm calling mundane life, where I'm going to do this contrast with the Burning Man Festival. Um, and and, and, and the, I guess a couple of things I want to do. One, one is uh, I want to talk about some topics that you don't see in a lot of Christian ethics books. And, um, you know, race, for example, being one of those, because uh, if you look at ethics texts written in the last 30, 40 years, no matter what perspective, liberal, conservative, etc., it's interesting that race is not is not in most of those books hmm. as an ethical topic. I, one thing one thing that I did when I was at seminary back in the 90s was I went to the library and I looked at the table of contents of every Christian ethics text and only two of them had racism as an, a, as an ethics topic. I thought that well, was better than probably in the 50s or the uh, 20s. That's or... true. That's true. <laughs> that's true. Um, so, I mean, now more people are talking about it, but it's still not exactly um, what one would expect. There's a... Um, a uh, Christian ethicist named Miguel De La Torre, who has written a bunch of things that are basically under the category. The first one was, was called Christian Ethics from the Margins. So, I mean, he, we're very different theologically. He's much more progressive than I am. Um, but his whole from the margins idea, you know, <laughs> very, you know, just kind of stands out to me because he's getting at the point of saying, look, there are other people who also care about Christian ethical topics. What about what they care about? Because you could have in a Christian ethics book, 
innumerable topics because we're asking questions about how do we live, right? So um, you have standard things in some Christian ethics texts, abortion, sexuality, war. Um, and of course, war has changed, you know, <laughs> as weapon systems have changed. Um, now you might have technology, you might have transhumanism, um, uh, certainly, you know, I mean, I obviously want to have uh, race and politics in there. Um, and the, the, the goal is to consider how to imagine differing ways to, for us to embody these coming attractions as, as individuals and in some cases as communities. All right. Well, I'll look will it be out? To- I don't know. <laughs> look forward to it coming out it sounds yeah. very interesting so um yeah. well uh dr baycoat it's been great to have you on the show we've been uh, talking about eschatology and ethics so um uh, thank you so much thanks for having me all right well peace to everyone